Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, Will Store on social position and how we use it. In his new book, The Status Game. Will Storr is an award-winning writer. His work has appeared in The Guardian, Sunday Times, New Yorker and New York Times. He's the author of five critically acclaimed books, most recently the Sunday Times bestseller, The Science of Storytelling. And today we're going to be talking about Will's latest book, which is The Status Game on Social Position and How We Use It. Will, welcome back to Little Atoms. Thanks, Neil. Tell us, first of all, then, what the idea is behind this one. Well, the idea is simply that status is a fundamental kind of force in human life. And it's just exploring where it came from and where it emerges, both in in the world around us, but also sort of going back through history. So it really is just, yeah, just looking at the idea of status as a kind of fundamental force in human social behaviour. So let's talk about what exactly we mean by status, because as you explain, there are, you know, there are certain things that drive human beings and make them successful. One of that might be attractiveness, wealth, uh, power. All of these things are slightly different from status. Yeah, so status is that feeling of being valued, essentially. It is as simple as that, you know, valued, respected, the admiration of of the people around us. That's what status is. So, so in the book, it's called the status game, and I, and I formulate that as you know, it's, it's just a way of looking at human groups. So, because of because of how we evolved, you know, as a tribal species, we've got these powerful emotions that compel us to both connect into groups, and then once we're in these groups, we you know vie for status within them. So, the status game is really about connection and status; those two kind of fundamental human needs that is sometimes described as getting along and getting ahead. You know, the two things that kind of that drives us. The book looks at kind of how extraordinarily imaginative the human animal is at, at kind of playing these status games and the fact that we can use almost anything to symbolize status so money is you know we haven't evolved to crave money you know money hasn't been around long enough we've evolved to crave status and and, and money is just you know one way that we symbolize status as this power power is another way we symbolize status there are kind of almost infinite ways where well, there are infinite ways as many as that, as that we can imagine ways of kind of playing these status games tell us how this book builds on the ideas of your previous books then because it does seem like the themes in those books are sort of building up to this idea in some ways 
Yeah. So, you know, years ago, Neil, you interviewed me for The Heretics, which was my third book. And The Heretics was really looking at, you know, how is it that otherwise intelligent people can end up believing crazy things? How did David Irving go from being a respected historian of the Second World War to somebody who believed that Hitler was a friend of the Jews? You know, that that was that. And the answer that I came to in there was this, you know, this idea that the brain is a storyteller. It doesn't really care that much about finding the truth about reality. It cares about selling us this kind of heroic narrative of who we are and our, and our place in the world. So the, so the status game builds kind of most obviously off, off that. I mean, Selfie kind of went a bit deeper looking about how culture informs our sense of who we are, you know, Western self versus Eastern self, um, how the economy shapes who we are. And the, the status game kind of, you know, really sort of brings those two kind of ideas together and turns them into something new. You mentioned that this is something that human beings have evolved with. The vast majority of the book is obviously talking about, you know, pretty contemporary culture. How do we sort of relate this to looking back to, you know, when human beings were hunter-gatherer societies, which we tend to think of as being, you know, we do tend to romanticise as being more egalitarian than modern society. Yeah, there is that very romantic ideal that's still very popular. Uh, and you, you still find that, that that around, that kind of idea of humankind, you know, the, the Rutger Bremner thing, where the, that we're all, you know, naturally egalitarian and we've been ruined by modernity. Uh, and, you know, the, the evidence suggests that that simply isn't true, that these hunter-gatherer groups were, were relatively egalitarian compared to the modern day, but they were relatively egalitarian because the members of those groups were very, very interested in their own level of status. And there were lots of sort of checks and balance and measures to make sure that nobody got too far above their own position. And, you know, just like today, life in those groups was a status game. The more status that we got, the, the better food we got, the safer our sleeping sites, the greater our access to our kind of choice mates. So, so, you know, survival and reproduction, the more status we have, the better able we are to survive and reproduce. So, and indeed, you know, it was true before we even were human. For millions of years, we've been like, so, you know, so many animals. You know, we jostle for rank, we jostle for status. So this kind of urge to kind of earn rank has been with us for millions of years but it's been with us in, in, in these kind of particularly human human ways for, for probably tens of thousands of years we're going to talk about various different types of status gain that you categorize in the book in a minute but to begin with right at the beginning of the book you give an example of somebody who's Status was raised and then lost again, but in a surprising way, perhaps. And that's this guy that was in prison. Tell us that story. Yeah, so this is Ben Gunn. I met Ben Gunn about um, you know a few years ago, um, and it, so he, he had a very troubled childhood. He was in care. He was fourteen years old, and he kind of escaped with, with a friend of his who was eleven at the time, and. They they had a a dispute. Um, well, really, what happened was that he he told this his friend a secret that remains a secret, and and, and as soon as he told his friend a secret, he kind of freaked out and realised that he shouldn't have said it, and he he just well he 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 beat him to death. Really, he he um he killed him. So at fourteen years old, Ben was sentenced to prison at Her Majesty's leisure. So you know he was he, he was fourteen years old, a child killer, the lowest of the low, and and certainly made to feel that way in prison. You know these petty abuses by the prison services he, you know he he just entered a state of despair tried to starve himself to death but slowly he kind of rescued himself from this he started learning and 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 educating himself and he you know maddened by the um abuses of the prison service he he became an expert in in the rules and regulations of of the prison uh, which enabled him to kind of fight back and then he sort of 
earned the status of the prison lawyer. So he, he was the guy that everybody would go to in prison uh, if they had trouble. And he, he would sort of take great pleasure in tying their prison servers up in knots because he knew more about what they were <laughs> they were and weren't allowed to do than they did. So he became this kind of notorious individual in prison to such an extent that every time he went for parole, he'd just get refused because he was such a, he infuriated the, the prison service so much they would just get refusing him bail to the extent that they started to be, he, he was in for, I think, over 30 years. There, there were campaigns to, to have him released because he was the longest serving prisoner in Britain. And, and, and then what happened was that he fell in love. Um, a, a, a woman called Alex started teaching English and they, they, they fell in love and they were having sex in stationary cupboards and, and things like this. And uh, he, he reached the, this extraordinary kind of point where Alex was basically saying to him, look, you know, I've got this house in the Cotswolds, this cottage, a beautiful cottage. We've got a cat. All you got to do is behave for six months. They'll let you out. And then it's happily ever after time. And but he kept misbehaving and it got to the point where Alex had to say to him, you know, what's going on? And he admitted to her, I want to stay in prison. And what happened was that he, you know, he'd found these what I call status games to play. He said to me that as a lifer, you, you're already, you, you automatically have a, a certain amount of status in prison as a lifer. But as a prison lawyer, he had a huge amount of status too. And, you know, and, and so inside the prison, he had this identity, this status that, that he knew he wouldn't have outside and in a, in a stroke of really insightful genius um alex encouraged him to start a blog which he did what's called prisoner ben and the blog won an orwell prize so, so he started to get a bit of status outside of prison and, and then he, he did he, he behaved and, and was released um, but it wasn't enough and, and when i met him he was certainly in terrible um psychological situation he was you know he, he, he was going through a um what he described as a breakdown because he just had you know the, the identity that he'd built for himself in prison the status you know had pretty much all gone so you talk about three types of roughly three categories of status games in the book, um, dominance, virtue and success. Tell us what you mean by each of those and perhaps an example of what you mean. Yeah, so, you know, there are all, all kinds of different ways that humans compete for status. Looks, age are obvious ones. Um, but but human social life you know, takes the form of these these three kind of forms of game, as I call them in the book. The, the basic one is dominance. And, you know, again, dominance is what we've been doing for millions of years. It's essentially violence uh, or the threat of it or coercion or the threat of ostracization, that kind of thing. So, so when people kind of force us to attend to them in respect uh, and, uh, you know, force us to kind of uh, uh, allow us to be influenced by them, that, that's dominance. But once we once we begin to settle down into communities and we, we started living groups, Groupishly, dominance obviously becomes not a great way to live your life because nobody wants to be living around people that are constantly fighting each other. So, so we became expert at these kind of prestige forms of status, and uh, you know, which is kind of reputational status. You know, we earned a good reputation. But you were basically you earn prestige by showing that you're being useful to the group in some way. So if you're valuable to the group, you're awarded with status, with prestige-based status. And there are two separate ways. The first way is to be virtuous. So courageous in battle, uh, generous with your food supplies, uh, you're somebody that is that, that is good at following the rules and enforcing the rules. That's that's virtue too. So these kinds of people would earn a form of status, of, you know, virtue status. But you could also be valued to the group of being successful or being highly competent by being a great honey finder, hunter, sorcerer, storyteller, and so on. So those were the three ways. You know, we, we never shook off dominance. So so dominance, virtue, and success are, the, are basically the three ways that we were earning status twenty thousand years ago, and it's the, the these are the main ways we earn status today as well. I mean, it hasn't really changed all that much. So in the book, I say, you know, we can basically be, you know, Idi Amin, um, Mother Teresa or Albert Einstein. You know, those, those are the three routes to significant status in, in human life. Hold up. 
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is The Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Will Storr and we're talking about his latest book, The Status Game, on social position and how we use it. And well, one of the the key aspects of, well, I guess either losing a status that we already have or indeed, you know, for people that have very little status to begin with is the the power of humiliation often a public humiliation so tell us about the significance of of humiliation to our perceived status yeah i mean th- this was a, a real breakthrough for me when i was doing my research when, when i was thinking about this as a potential book i kind of gave myself a test you know, i just thought well if you know if, if status is as important as you know these researchers are saying then then surely when we lose it it must be pretty terrible and 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 so is it that's that was the question and so i started reading about humiliation and, and you know the technical definition of humiliation you know being this it's not just the removal of your status it's the removal of the ability to claim status in the future so you're completely it's gone no one's ever going to respect you again essentially that's that's how humiliation feels and um and it is it's just extraordinary that the kind of list of terrible human behaviors that humiliation is implicated in everything from honor killings to terrorism to incels to uh, all the way up to um genocide so yeah I mean, it, it really does seem that that humiliation is a it, it, one of the researchers that i read called it the nuclear bomb of the emotion yeah, one of the examples you use here, and again, with the caveat that, you know, not everybody does this. It's uh, even possible to be a, a terrible, hateful misogynist for years and years without actually killing anybody. Yes. But you talk about <laughs> Elliot Roger. Tell us about the example of Elliot Roger. 
Well, so, 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 so yeah, as you indicate, obviously simply being humiliated isn't enough to turn us into killing machines because then everybody would just be killing everybody all the time. You know, there are a number of other factors that, that, that kind of tie together various mass killers. There were lots really, but two other ones that, that I thought were pertinent to the book. And, and the first one was being male, because of course being male radically increases the chance the, that you're going to defend your you know perceived lost status with violence. But also being narcissistic, you know, what you tend to find especially with with serial killers in cells um, that turn violent is that is they tend to be very entitled and grandiose and narcissistic and Elliot Rogers was, was a classic of this of this example that, that not only was he bullied and rejected and you know felt humiliated by men and women when he was growing up but he was also incredibly narcissistic you know he was absolutely convinced that he had this sort of entitlement to, to, to be unpopular and to be you know with, with men and with women and, and so you know the, the reality that he wasn't just drove him to well to, to hatred misogyny and ultimately to, to madness. I mean, you know, the, the things the guy wrote in his in his memoir were just, you know, were, 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 you know the, the extremes of misogyny that he felt to were just extraordinary. At the time, after he had, you know, he'd done his notorious spree killing, numerous generally right-wing pundits obviously fingered that perennial uh, bet noir, the video game, as, <laughs> a, um, as a major cause in, you know, in what he'd done. Um, and I really wanted to talk about how this turns out to be almost exactly the opposite of the case. Yeah, that's right. So you're right. Yeah, lots of right-wing pundits um, pointed to his obsession with World of Warcraft. Left, left-wing pundits too, Vice Magazine pointed that his obsession with World of Warcraft. Um, but it's, it's completely the opposite, really, because when I read that, it didn't make any sense to me because he was actually really good at World of Warcraft. It was the only thing he was good at, uh, essentially, apart from hating people. And yeah, uh, he, he, if you actually read his, his memoir that he uploaded to the internet, uh, you know, he, he talks, I mean, the thing about that is, this, you know, despite his narcissism, he's brutally honest, brutally honest about himself and how kind of loathed and hated he was. And he talks about how he, he, he's only happy He's only he can only forget this kind of mental torture that, that he's experiencing, and in this this kind of obsession with with, with women and being popular, uh, when he's playing World of Warcraft. And then what happens is that. Um, you know, because he's behaving so badly, he's losing, you know, he just doesn't have many friends. But he has a few friends he played World of Warcraft with. And then one day he, he discovered that they were secretly meeting up without him and playing without him. And he was devastated by this and to the point where he was playing World of Warcraft. In, you know, he, he, find he was in floods of tears as he was playing and, and just just decided he was just going to give up. And, and literally the day he decides he's going to give up playing World of Warcraft, he, he, he describes to his only remaining friend this vision he has of the future in which sex is going to be abolished and women were going to be basically exterminated apart from a few who who is going to keep alive in um you know to artificial insemination so so what happens when he stop when he stops playing world of warcraft literally on the same day is that is that he goes from just being a typical angry hateful misogynist to somebody who is dangerous and is having these really disturbing ideas about how the world should operate and, and so as i argue in the book i you know i just think far you know far from being the cause of his madness I, you know i think the world of warcraft was more likely the last thing keeping him sane there's a couple of chapters in the book one that's called the floor which talks about how i guess no matter how much status there's not a sort of finite amount of status that a person can achieve. We are always dissatisfied and wanting more. And then there's a chapter called The Universal Prejudice, which talks about, you know, how people with less status are inevitably jealous, envious of people with more 
status. And both of these chapters made me think, to what extent are these things actually, you know, the world's a, a terribly unequal place. In what way are these things just conditions of, uh, you know, modern capitalist society rather than inherent human traits? Well, there, are, you know, resentment and envy, they're inherent human traits because status is, is relative. And, and, you know, what you see in, in hunter-gatherer tribes commonly is, as I said before, they're egalitarian because people are, because humans are very envious and resentful. And we're very good at putting people down to our level and making sure that nobody lords it above us. But what does make it worse in the modern world is that, is that we were designed to play these, you know, status games in small groups that, that were relatively egalitarian. Uh, you know, we, we, our, our brains aren't designed to play these enormously uh, kind of unfair games that that we are um, that we that we find ourselves immersed in in you know a modern capitalist global economy, especially in the days of the you know in, in the era of the internet. But but even no, it's not even about the internet so much as you know it's celebrity culture. You know, we, we're not designed to experience people being so you know incredibly high above us in status. Um, so so I, I think I don't. It seems to me that that kind levels of envy and resentment that, that are experienced today we're not supposed to be experiencing them i think they're probably more common than they they were because you know we don't live in these egalitarian groups anymore we live in the world of you know the cult of the ceo and the cult of the celebrity and the, you know these political leaders who are kind of celebrated as you know extraordinary heroes so so i do think there's an, there's an extent to which we're kind of maddened by this and uh, yeah and, and and you know as i say it's because status is is, is relative and, and as you say the chapter in the floor just you know, looks at this idea that when researchers try to find the place where our, de- our desire for status levels off they can't find it there isn't one and that's different to something like power you know with power tends to come responsibility and effort you know a lot of most people they get a certain amount of power they don't really want anymore because it's like oh god but but status is is not the case and it's not that we we all want to be super mega stars it's just it just ratchets up you know we get a certain amount of status we acclimatized to it and then we want a bit more and then we want a bit more. I mean, you know, I experienced this as an author, you know, you want every book to sell more than the last. And when they don't, you just feel like the world's falling to pieces. You know, it's terrible. And that's why I call it the floor. It's this, it is, it seems to me, this part of our cognition that, that kind of robs us of the possibility of being reliably happy because it's this constant, oh, you know, <laughs> that, that, that feeling. Well, taking this up to a, a higher level than society then, to a sort of like a nation level or a sort of world level, let's talk about how the need for status fuels bigger events like, you know, wars and empires and the subjugation of peoples. Yeah, so this is kind of interesting stuff, work for me to do because I, you know, I'm, I've always been a left wing person. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not in the slightest bit nationalistic, but of course, lots of people are, and you know, I, I think I understand that much more now. Before I was, you know, I had this prejudiced idea, really, to be fair, honest, where you know you'd see a union. Judge- flying outside the house and I just think I was just racist there's racists in there and you know that's surely true some of the time but also these people are playing different status games to me they're using different things to symbolize status and some people are really proud of being English and British I'm not particularly but some people are um, and that's okay they should be allowed to be but of course you know the, the problems come then is when when you have um, situations I guess like Brexit or you know the situations we're going through now you see in the news this week you see France behaving in an extraordinarily with fury at being um, uh, 
having their submarine contract uh, thrown away by Australia. And you really see the, the, the you know, the, the, that kind of nationalist, the sense of nationalist uh, fury. It, there's something petulant and childish about it. Uh, in the same way that, you know, from my perspective, there's something petulant and childish about a lot of the anti-EU feeling before the Brexit vote. It comes from a place of my identity, my the status game that I'm playing is, is, is rooted in the status of my nation. Just as for some people, it's rooted in, in, in the status of a football team. And, um, you know, when I, when I feel that we're being humiliated, it's personal because that's my status. That, that, that's, that's my criteria for claiming status as being sort of reduced. So it's in this idea that, um, that our groups are our source of status, you know, that our games are our source of status and our games compete for status with other games. And when those games win, we win personally. And when those games lose, we feel that pain and we become furious as if it's something that's happened personally to us. So, so, so this is how it can, it can become really dangerous, you know, on the level of the nation state. And, and, and certainly, you know, one of the, again, one, one of the, one of the kind of light bulbs for me was when I looked at the rise of the Nazis, you know, through the lens of status. And, you, you, you know, it, it becomes really clear what, ha- what happened there. You know, Germany were this grandiose, very grandiose nation, lots of grandiose ideas about himself, itself for lots of very good reasons. They were the, by far the most successful nation in um, continental and perhaps all of Europe um, before the First World War. And, you know, as everybody knows, it went badly wrong for them and the Treaty of Versailles threw them into this state of absolute kind of humiliation and degradation compared to you know, the other nations of Europe. And they told a story that in its basic outlines is no different from the story that Elliot Rogers told about women. And that's that it was the fault of the Jewish people and the answer was to exterminate them. So, you know, it's it seems to me that there's something really, you know, fundamental here that, that this this crazy spree killer incel type um, in um, Santa Barbara a few years ago was going through the same thing as this kind of nation was going through that, that led up to the, to the Second World War and the, and the Holocaust. There's a couple of points in the book where you, again, you mentioned the book we talked about previously, Heretics, where, you know, you look back at some people with... Most people would suggest were irrational beliefs. So, so people that are anti-vax, and you look at the um, the nineteen eighties satanic ritual abuse fad in the in the US, and um, these are things that you know most people looking in from the outside would think that would give all of these people low status because I look at these people and think, well, how on earth can you believe this crazy stuff? But <laughs> you talk about these ideas as being, again, just another another form of status game at its heart. Yeah, I mean, you know, you know, a game is, is just another way of saying it's a group. It's, it's a coalition of people who who are connected by beliefs and ideas and criteria for claiming status. And, and I think these belief-based groups that, that end up being so damaging, and currently most obviously, you know, anti-vax, the anti-vax groups, they, they, they operate as status games. And I interviewed um, a young woman, Miranda Dinder, um, uh, from Pennsylvania, who told me her experience that she wanted a home birth and she found a, a midwife and the midwife asked her if... Um, She'd ever considered not vaccinating her baby. And she thought this was such like a mad idea. <laughs> like, what are you talking about? So, the, 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 you know, the, the, this woman said, oh, you know, go and check on Google. So she, she so she looked on Google and ended up with a, a, a Facebook uh, anti-vax community and you know, announced herself as vaccine hesitant, having done some uh, other research on the Internet. 
and was immediately kind of, you know, kind of lifted into this group. And, and she, she, she described very vividly that she said, you know, I, I grew up in a family of strong women. I really admire strong women. And here I was, you know, I was 18 years old and surrounded by other, you know, really amazing mums that were strong and uh, opinionated and on a mission to save the world from what this was, this dreadful big pharma conspiracy. And she just, you know, I wanted to be like them and, and, and you know, I wanted to, wanted to feel part of them, want to be connected to them. And I wanted to earn status. I wanted to, to earn their respect. So you just start copying them. You start, you know, you absorb their beliefs and behavior. And and, and she talked about how, um, you know, one of the things that, that was common in that group was that you'd go out into the world and evangelize, you know, your beliefs. You'd have arguments with your cousins and arguments with your doctor. And you'd come back, you know, turn on Facebook and tell everyone what you've been doing. And they'd be going, yeah, you know, you go, go, you're, you're amazing. You know, you tell them. And, you know, she just said, that, you know, that the more kind of actively you express those beliefs, the, the, the more social position you got, the higher you were kind of ranked in, in that group. And, and you can see this, I think, in all kind of belief-based groups. You know, there, there are certain groups that are who membership depends on belief, but status depends on, you know, what I call in the book, active belief. You know, you allow yourself to become possessed by that belief and you go out into the world and proselytizing that belief becomes your status play. That's how you earn your status. And I think these are the really dangerous groups. Obviously, the you know we tend to think nowadays that you know with the rise of social media, these sort of groups are like have risen as well. Obviously, the the satanic panic thing that you talk about was from the nineteen eighties, way before mm. the rise of the internet. Never mind social media. So it obviously always happened. But yeah, even before I read this book, I was of the belief that social media is one of the worst inventions humanity has ever come up with. Um, it's it, it's not helped my uh, my belief in that. Yeah. By reading the book, a, a system that's literally designed where you actually put your status. What's your status on yes, the exactly. screen yeah. for other people? <laughs> um, seems like you know, absolutely the perfect terrible system to use yeah. for a society that's obsessed with status doesn't yeah it? of course and that's no accident because you know the, the, the creators of these platforms have you know by instinct worked out how status games work and have kind of molded their platforms around uh, around people's competition for status and, and in, you know those three different kinds of game that i described earlier on in, in our chat dominance virtue and success that's social media you know dominance you, you've got you know um groups trying to, you know, attack each other, you know, sometimes in, in their offline lives too. You've got certainly got lots of virtue, people kind of broadcasting their, you know, that kind of what they perceive as their kind of virtuous behavior, their moral beliefs. And of course, success, you know, you just got to turn on Instagram and look at everyone's amazing holiday and their flat stomach and their lovely breakfast, you know, all, all the symbols of success that they're using to, you know, or the, their criteria for claiming success-based status is all over those kinds of platforms. And that that's what social media is. It's dominance, virtue and success. So, so, so I mean, but, I, mean it, 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 I think the interesting thing is this, this understanding that, that definitely people like Jack Dorsey and Mark Zuckerberg have encouraged this because that's how people become addicted to their, or, you know, com- their platforms become compulsive. Um, but but as, a, as, as I recount in the book, you know, I tell the story of what was probably the first social media site as we know it, The Well, which was launched in 1985. And when it reached about 500 people, they, they, they were cancelling each other and even arguing about gender pronouns. So, so you know, it's just, it's just something that seems to happen when people connect together. Not arguing about gender pronouns, obviously, but, but these kinds of general statusy behaviors to finish it off then at the end of the book you you list seven rules how can we be better around our pursuit of status not just in terms of on an individual basis but ways in which you know we can we can use the pursuit of status to make a better world 
Well, yeah, I think on the, on the personal level, it's about, uh, you know, I talk about reducing your moral sphere, you know, and what I mean by that is that I think the easiest way we can feel that we, that we have relative status is by kind of morally judging other people and morally attacking other people. It doesn't take any effort to do that, especially on social media, just to tweet away, to try and focus less on other people's moral behavior and, and more on ourselves. But in the bigger picture, it's really about those kinds of, it's about those kinds of status game again. And and I think if you look at the worst behaviours in new ministry, and again, everything up to genocide, these are what I call kind of dominance virtue games that, that you know, they're coloured by dominant behaviour and they're about enforcing, you know, your group and your group's rules and forcing other people to attend to your group's rules. But, but, but whereas the best um, games, games that really do change the world for the better are these, are what I call success virtue games. So they're, they're about success. So, so you earn status by achieving a certain, you know, predefined aim. But they're also kind of virtuous. It's not, you know, it's you know, a kind of horrible capitalist company that's that's destroying the world is a success game. But when you add virtue into that, you're suddenly creating the AstraZeneca vaccine, or you're, you know, running a marathon for to raise money for breast cancer. So I think these are the best games, and and, and you know, that's perhaps counterintuitive to some people that it wouldn't be sort of straightforward virtue. But of course, you know, this idea of virtue is is the ultimate trade off, really. It's um the worst acts in human history have been carried out in the name of virtue. It's really success uh, virtue games that we should be playing. So I've been talking to Will Stoll. We've been talking about his book, The Status Game, on social position and how we use it, which is out now in the UK from William Collins. Will, thank you so much for taking the time to tell me about it. Thanks, Neil. Thanks for your great questions. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Neil Mason, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. Please do subscribe and tell your friends. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.